Hi there, this is the Rev. Michael Lowry, pastor of East Congregational United Church of Christ in Concord, New Hampshire, and this is Love to Tell the Story. In an example of how biblical expressions so often become part of our common language, I've always been intrigued by how giving a widow's mite to some cause or another has often ended up referring to someone making the smallest of contributions, when the truth to that particular expression refers to the greatest of gifts, that of everything the giver has to share. Well, in today's message, we take a closer look at the story from which that expression is drawn, from Mark chapter 12, verses 38 through 44, about how the widow's mite, M-I-T-E, becomes the widow's mite, M-I-G-H-T. In one of several essays that he wrote about matters of faith, theology, and the Bible, the late author John Updike once made the very apt observation that at its heart, the gospel narrative is actually the story of two worlds colliding. He wrote that in his teaching and by his very presence, Jesus overthrows common sense. And he declares an inversion of the world's order, whereby the first shall be last and the last will be first, that the meek shall inherit the earth, that the hungry and thirsty shall be satisfied, and that the poor of spirit will inherit the kingdom of heaven. This kingdom, Updike went on to say, is the hope and the pain of Christianity. And it is attained against the grain through the denial of instinctive and, and social wisdom and through faith in the unseen. Two worlds colliding. That is, common sense running headlong against God's foolishness. That actually, when you think about it, might well be the entire biblical message in a nutshell. Think about this with me for a minute. It certainly reflects God's action throughout history. Consider, for instance, Abraham and Sarah, who held on to this ridiculous notion that although they were both in their 90s, God was not only calling them to leave home and kindred, to wander off to a new and as yet unknown destination. Not only that, but he was also about to make them parents of an entire nation. Or how about Moses? That's the subject of our, uh, of our virtual Sunday school this month. How about Moses, who by anyone's standard would have been considered crazy for confronting the all-powerful Pharaoh with a clear ultimatum to let my people go? Or for that matter, think of the determination of, uh, of David or, or Joshua or Daniel, the bravery of Esther or Ruth, the sheer audacity of Jeremiah and the whole host of prophets. These were all people who lived in direct opposition to the, the conventions and standards and the politics of their time and their world. And they did it out of faith in the almighty and providential God. And they did it strengthened by the love and strength that the same God gave them for the task. 
However, all that said, nowhere is this worldly collision that Updike talked about more apparent than in Jesus. Jesus, who seemingly defied good sense and common sensibility every step along the way. I mean, whatever else one might say about Jesus, be it a believer or one who is just kind of a casual observer of Jesus, it can certainly be asserted that where the ways of this world were considered, Jesus was utterly and relentlessly unpredictable. When it came to social acceptability, he did the unthinkable. He, he ate with tax collectors and, and publicans. He, he associated with prostitutes. He, he was there amongst the lepers and the poor and the sick and the uneducated, on and on. And where the powers that be were concerned, Jesus regularly shook the tree branches of the status quo to say nothing of needling the religious establishment first to within an inch of its patience and then way beyond its tolerance. And in large part because of that, the culmination of his life and work ended up being his death on the cross. But even then, even then, friends, in one final act of defiance against all of the world's expectations, Jesus was resurrected and all of creation was redeemed. Jesus, you see, was a true radical. But understand, this was not being radical for the sake of being radical but it was for the purpose of instigating that worldly collision to which Update was referring. Not even so much that even, but wholly for the sake of the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ was the very embodiment of God's foolish wisdom, in which, uh, according to another writer, theologian, and historian M. Conrad Hires, the whole hierarchy of human values, the, the, of human greatness and self-importance self are inverted. In the kingdom of God, servants appear in the stead of their masters and mistresses. Riff-raff, writes Hires, are admitted to the royal banquet table. Nobody stand up and are counted. Peasants are crowned king and queen for a day, and a ragged band of slaves become chosen people of God. The kingdom, you see, is a world in which beggars are more at home than the wealthy, sinners more than righteous, children more than their parents, and clowns and fools more than priests and scribes. Yes, here we have it again, that in the kingdom of God, everything becomes topsy-turvy, but it's so that everything might be made right. So understand then that when Jesus, as we heard in our text for this morning, when Jesus condemns the prideful posturing of scribes while making a point of lifting up the value of a small but sacrificial gift of a widow who'd made her way to the temple treasury, he's not reflecting on the amount of the gift. Rather, Jesus is commenting on the fact that 
What this woman had done was flying right in the face of everything the world respects and holds dear. Things like wealth and power, abundance, and the all-too-common obsession with being seen. <laughs> and what it all comes down to, friends, what we're talking about here are two little coins, two lepta, which represented about one-fortieth of a day's wage for unskilled labor. Basically, two pennies. And not only that, it should be pointed out that these are very tiny little coins. So you've got to understand that physically and economically, these tiny little lepta meant nothing in the worldly scheme of things. Or at least nothing compared to all the valuable and voluminous gifts that were ceremoniously placed in the treasury that day. But here's the thing. These two tiny little coins that amounted to next to nothing was, in fact, everything. Everything this widow had in the world. And she gave it willingly. She gave it out of her great faith and devotion unto God. She gave it out of her confidence, a sure and certain knowledge that in the giving she would receive and because she she'd already received much more than she could possibly give in return. This widow's gift was excessive and extravagant and much more than should have ever been required. But then again, so was her love of God. And it's this gift, this so-called widow's might, this is what Jesus tells us is worth more than all the ample offerings given in the temple that day. It's giver much more reverent than the learned scribes who had regularly come to that treasury to parade their piety, all for the sake of the best seats in the synagogues and places that honor at banquets, who, who devoured widows' houses. Now that's an interesting idea for you. Devouring widows' houses, taking uh, anything they could get from them for the sake of their own comfort. Upside-down thinking, to be sure. that To even consider that one elderly, poverty-stricken, powerless widow could give the greater gift. But such is the kingdom of God, where true abundance is measured in commitment, and a widow's might becomes the widow's might. It's an amazing concept. And in an Quite frankly, it's one that still collides with the world in which we live, right? After all, this is a world where wealth is power. Where corporate CEOs, movie stars, and professional athletes command annual salaries far greater than the vast majority of others can make in a lifetime. Where the Jeff Bezos and the Bill Gates of this world can contribute a billion dollars to charity, but still be among the richest of all. In a word, let's be honest about it. We are part of a society where too much is not enough, where need, want, and avarice too often get confused as one and the same, where the definition of financial security becomes broader and larger with each passing generation. 
But then into this world that we know so very well comes Jesus. And Jesus comes bringing the good news that, wait for it, God doesn't care about our money. Now, I realize I'm probably going to get in real trouble for saying that today, it being stewardship season and everything. But I've got to be theologically honest with you. Ultimately, it does not matter to God the amount that we put in an offering plate, virtually or otherwise. How much or how little one gives, it doesn't matter because the fact is our God, the almighty God who created in heaven and earth, doesn't need our money. But, hold on, lest any of us think we're off the hook where stewardship is concerned, understand that God wants something more, something more than our money, something more than the abundance of our wealth. God wants, God desires, God asks for the sacrificial gift, the sacrifice of our hearts, the sacrifice that comes with our trust, the sacrifice that's offered up by our love. And the thing is, friends, that's nothing new. Because throughout Scripture, God has said this again and again. And it amounts to this. You will be my people and I will be your God. What God wants you to see is for you and I to make a commitment unto him. To claim him as our own as he has claimed each one of us. And that, you see, was what that widow was doing by this little gift of two tiny little coins. Everything she had in the world. She was, in essence laying her very life into the hands of God. And she was saying, here you go. I trust you. I am putting my life into your hands now. I'm yours. It's a remarkable thing, really. And not only is it an act of true faith, it's an act of might. And might I add here that ultimately, it's what our giving our pledging, our stewardship. That's what it's supposed to be all about. At the end of the day, it's always about our trust in the God who continues, even in these strange and uncertain times, to, to bless us so richly. And it's about our sheer might in proclaiming the kingdom of God in our midst. You see, friends, more than the giving of our offerings, it's about the giving of our hearts. And of course, we all know that when we give our heart to something, we inevitably end up giving so much more. Perhaps even all that we have. William Willimon, author, professor, Methodist bishop, wonderful preacher, he tells this, this great story of an old friend of his he had learned had been sent to the custodial care of a nearby nursing facility. Now, Willeman writes that the news came as something as a surprise that because as far as he knew, his friend, though he was now in his late 70s, was in perfect health. He had a great vitality for life. That He was shocked to think that he was going to this nursing facility. The only thing he managed to find out 
is that his friend had been sent to the nursing home because of his, quote, distressing mental state, unquote, which surprised Willimon even more. And he said, surely age had not taken its toll that quickly. Well, come to find out. Apparently his friend had volunteered in his retirement to work a couple of days a week at the church-sponsored soup kitchen. The next thing you know, Willimon wrote, John had gotten so involved over there that one day he just sat down and wrote them out a check for $100,000. Just like that. No discussion, no forethought. A hundred grand, just like that. Which, by the way, happened to be most of his life savings. And he wrote the check and he handed it over to the soup kitchen. And of course, Willimon continued, his children thought he'd gone over the deep end. So they forced him to go to a nursing home where he would re receive proper supervision. Listen carefully there, and you might just hear the sound of a collision. For such is the upside-down, topsy-turvy world of the kingdom of God. Now, am I suggesting to you this morning that we all sign away our life savings to the church or to some mission movement? No, I am not suggesting that. But I would suggest to you, to each of us really, that we look closely at the thoughtfulness of our giving. In our offerings and our stewardship, yes, of course, but most especially in the giving of ourselves. Do we give a portion out of our abundance? Or do we give all that we have? Do we offer first fruits, as it says in the Old Testament? Or do we just offer up the gleanings of our lives? Is what we offer unto God today with our lives a, a sacrificial gift? Or is it what's left over? Do we truly give of ourselves? Now I know, friends, that these are strange times to be asking these kind of questions. Uncertainty and fear and a creeping common sense, if you will, would seem to dictate that this year we quarantine our resources right along with ourselves. But our kingdom sensibilities would suggest otherwise. And that now is the time to approach the temple of God with thanksgiving and gladness. That now is the time when we should be investing of our whole selves unto the Lord's work in this place. For now is the moment when we are called to boldly be the church in a world that is sorely in need of what we have to give. Now is the time, beloved. And I hope and I pray today that you will give prayerful consideration to this. But even more than this, my prayer today is that whatever might each of us brings forward, that it be a gift of our hands and our hearts and our very lives. And that first and foremost, what we give be in response to what has already been given to us. As the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians, what has been given us by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who rich as he was made himself poor for our sake in order to make us rich by means of his poverty. 
But this, you see, friends, will be the gift that shows forth our might for the sake of his kingdom. Thanks be to God for all he gives and for all that he empowers us to give in return. Amen and amen. And that's the message entitled, The Widow's Might. And it was recorded for our November the 15th online service of worship at East Church in Concord, New Hampshire. By the way, you can always join us live for those online services of worship by logging on to Facebook Live on our East Church Facebook page each and every Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. It's looking like we'll be continuing these online services for the foreseeable future, so we'd love to have you be a part of that experience right along with us. And with that, we're at the end of another episode of Love to Tell the Story. This is Michael Lowry, and I thank you so much for listening. And until next time, stay safe, be well, and may God bless you with a great day every day. Talk to you soon.